This audio is brought to you by Business Radio, powered by Wharton. From the campus of the University of Pennsylvania Wharton School, this is Mastering Innovation on Business Radio, Sirius XM 111. Hello and welcome. You're listening to Mastering Innovation, our new show here on Sirius XM's Business Radio, powered by the Wharton School. I'm your host, Harbir Singh, co-director of the Mac Institute and a professor of management. Just a reminder, we are live every Thursday at 4 p.m. Eastern Time, and the show replays a few times throughout the week. The Mac Institute really is about innovation and its transformative impact on society and on firms, and also about how you develop talent to create innovative organizations. It so happens our show today is exactly on those two topics. If you have any comments or questions during today's show, give us a call. Our phone lines are open at 1-844-WHARTON. That's 1-844-942-7866. We have a couple of great guests today. Coming up in the second half of today's show, I'll be joined by Dennis Carey, the vice chairman of executive search firm Conferry and the author of the new book, Talent Wins, the new playbook for putting people first. But now I'm thrilled to welcome Russ Fredin and Steve Heyman, co-founders of the company Dynamic Signal. Dynamic Signal is a company that helps organizations communicate better with their employees. Both have experience in leadership roles before creating Dynamic Signal, and actually both have degrees from the University of Pennsylvania. So I'm uh, very proud to invite Russ and Steve. Thank you for joining me today. Thank you. Thank you for having me. A pleasure. So, Russ, uh, tell us exactly what Dynamic Signal is and what it does for business. Sure. So, uh, Dynamic Signal's a seven and a half year old startup company in Silicon Valley, and we sell technology to enterprises all around the world that they use to connect with, engage with, and communicate with their employees. Uh, it's particularly popular with companies that have a large number of mobile, disconnected, maybe blue-collar workers, but works very well for companies of all shapes and sizes. And it's really all about the fact that the smartphone has completely changed the way that people work. And traditional solutions like intranets, uh, where no one goes to and there's no tracking and no data and poor tools to keep them updated, or mobile alert tools or magazines and posters in the break room just aren't particularly well-suited for today's corporate environment. Very interesting. And I noticed that uh, you have, uh, is it 20% of the Fortune 100 adopting your technology? I believe I believe that's the number that's on our website, 20, 25%. We, we are... We're relatively unique in the world of Silicon Valley startups in that you've heard of basically all of our customers. So we, mm-hmm. we really are only focused on companies with more than a thousand employees all around the world. Mm-hmm. That's fascinating. And then, how did you? I mean, that's a high degree of penetration. Uh, tell us your value proposition. There may be others also providing a solution like this, and clearly you've been able to differentiate yourself substantially. Sure. So. Uh, we, you can really kind of do two things when you're starting a new company. One is try and create a new category. Uh, the other is just try and do a better or cheaper job. Uh, 
doing something that is already done today. And so I would say we really opted for the former. This is this is effectively a new category that we invented. Obviously, we have competitors, but we've been fortunate to date in that if you're a large enterprise and you look at us alongside of all of our competitors, uh, you really start to see the benefit of, frankly, all of the stuff Steve has been building for so many years. So there's, you know, a, as you imagine, there's a uh, there's a great relationship between capital raised and product fullness, right? Whether it is scalability, whether it is performance, because frankly, you turn that money into engineers, and those engineers turn that they turn their time into more features and functionality and breadth and depth for the product. And so, uh, we we've been very fortunate today that we probably have an 85 or 90 percent win rate in the enterprise today i'm not i'm not sure that will stay true forever of course or lots of things can happen to companies as they grow but uh we've been very fortunate to have really been the guys uh that invented the category and then have raised the most money and spent the most money on the product so that if you're one of the large global 2000 and you take a look at the category it you know generally turns out that we have the most complete product Fascinating. Uh, so, Steve, tell us about the development process. I mean, that seems to be the heart of all of this. So, at Dynamic Signal, we spend a lot of our day figuring out what is the right thing to build next. Um, we we take in input from around our various customers and around where we uh, want to take the product. Uh, we have a, a PM team who spends you know, basically their whole their their whole uh work uh work time trying to plan out the roadmap, trying to understand what to build, specking it out and then handing it over to our dev team to get it built. Mm-hmm. And and so when you look at I mean so that's wonderful to be a category initiator and then, you know, get a gain a lead in that in that domain. And of course now people start trying to reverse I assume other companies start trying to reverse engineer Sure. what's in it. Uh, so how does one stay ahead? And this is, of course, at the heart of innovation. So as we think about this, uh, how do what are the lessons for other organizations? Well, I think the important oh, thing is... I'm sorry. I think the important thing is to focus on what's going to add the most value to your customer base as it exists today, or where do you want to take the product uh, you know, in a new direction to get a new line of business open or a new set of customers. Mm-hmm. Uh, we, we obviously work very hard to uh, stay in the lead. We are constantly innovating and extending our product line, both in terms of adding new, new capabilities, new features to the existing product, but also opening up new, uh, new offerings and new avenues to uh, either uh, help our existing customers do more with our product or to to gain new customers in the space uh, so um, there are in in, in uh, the world of technology and particularly related to smartphones there's a lot of discussion around ecosystems you know there are kind of uh, standards and platforms and how companies connect onto ecosystems uh, so do you do you sort of I assume your Given that you are working with large, many large corporations, your uh, solutions are agnostic towards particular ecosystems, whether it's the iOS or the smartphone, and so on and so forth. That's true. We we support pretty much whatever platform uh, the employees are using, 
and the, the main ones, of course, iOS and Android, uh, or the web, mm -hmm. mobile web, desktop web. Uh, we also, inside the organizations, there's a great deal of difference between company to company in terms of what internal systems they're using. So mm -hmm. we have to be compatible with all of them. So yeah, platform agnostic is, is definitely correct and also very uh, strong focus on how to integrate with and play uh, along with all of the existing infrastructure that, that these companies have rolled out for you know the past 20 plus years. Mm -hmm. and, and does that sort of... Uh pose um, are there are there some uh, uh, you know systems enterprise systems that are uh, less attractive to you to be part of or i mean obviously you want to go after all the business you can but in some cases maybe development costs are higher or adaptation costs are higher or is it sort of a modular setup i i don't have a good feel for it but i think you understand what i'm asking yeah so as you go further back in time or as the systems get older uh they're, they were not designed uh, to be integrated with as directly as a more modern uh, system. So certainly uh, SaaS-based platforms are, um, are easier to integrate with than mm -hmm. on-premise software. Um, but our goal is to go, is to integrate it as deeply as possible with, with all the systems. So we we have we have the ability and we and we spend the effort to make sure we can integrate with your SaaS offerings with your on-premise offerings and even uh many companies have built their own custom platforms over mm -hmm. time so right. our, you know our goal is to integrate with them as deeply as possible uh not just because that makes the uh the the program run more smoothly but also it helps with us uh, and uh, raising the barriers to entry for subsequent competition. So, um, and this is a question for both of you. How did the idea come about? It's such a fascinating idea. And, you know, how, do, how did you take it from idea to business model and then your first major order and so on? Our students here are super excited about entrepreneurship and starting up businesses. So this is actually not how the company was started. Steve and I and, and our third co-founder, uh, who we've worked with for uh, almost as long as we've worked together. He just happens not to be a Wharton alum. Mm -hmm. uh, <coughs> but the three of us started Dynamic Signal to solve, a pro to solve a problem in a space we knew very, very well. So we're kind of We've been successful multiple times doing things in the digital advertising technology ecosystem mm -hmm. uh, on the research side, on the media side, and on the technology side. And so we had mm -hmm. known that for years. And with the rise of social media, we started the company really focused on solving a problem for marketers around how to get more people, specifically the employees at that company, actively talking about marketers' content on social media. Mm -hmm. And so what it required to do that was building a technology platform that companies would use to push content to their employees that was convenient for their employees to look at and share. And so we knew that well, and that product worked very, very, very well. Mm -hmm. And what happened is while we were in that space and we were selling that, we used to call that category employee advocacy, and it, it is still a perfectly useful thing in the world. And uh, as we were... As we were building and growing that category that we had invented, we, we really kept listening to customers and figuring out other things that they could do with 
the product. So we actually did not start out to build Dynamic Signal like so many companies. Uh, we started out with an idea, and what I'd say is as that idea caught on, mm -hmm. we continued looking for other ways to take the same technology and those same relationships and just further penetrate the existing customers. So there, there, there is only one product at Dynamic Signal. What happened over time is we added more and more and more and more and more functionality, really more breadth and depth to the offering. And so the way we talk about ourselves today is very different from the way we spoke about ourselves year, six years ago. Mm -hmm. But the answer is really, I guess, you know, to boil it down to your students, we started with a very clear problem in a category that we deeply understood as well as anyone else out there in the world. And then as we became successful, looked for ways to continue growing and expanding what we were already doing with our existing customers. Fascinating. So it's really like a, uh, getting into an adjacent space or... Uh, extending a technology, uh, uh, you know, extending what you're using in one technology and one set of clients to another set of uh, applications, it seems, right? A hundred percent. If you think about it, the core technology Dynamic Signal mm -hmm. had one use case. And today, thanks to, frankly, having such wonderful customers and spending so much time hearing from them and constantly innovating and constantly driving the conversations, we've been able to make it so that there are you know, 12 things that one does with the Dynamic Signal platform today, and one of them is that original use. There's nothing wrong with that use, but the other 11 things are things that we've come up with over the years that have just allowed the business to, you know, our average new deal size today is 5x what it was three years ago uh, because we solve so much more for an enterprise than we used to. Very interesting. Uh, and then, so, uh, when you do this kind of extension, uh, part of the challenge becomes, you know, as you said, you changed the language, you changed how you positioned uh, the, the proposition. Um, and I think most importantly, you listen to your customers. I think uh, when you look at, you know, this work on disruptive innovation, one of the reasons why disruptive innovation uh, caught on and, and, you know, disrupted some of the larger corporations was that they were they, they were caught up in the existing model and not really uh, understanding the next use case. So can yes. you tell us how you, you know, what it was that did that for you? Sure. Uh, so part of this is fundamentally, I think, inherent in building an inherent in building a SaaS software company versus building an on-prem, you know, traditional software company. There are pros and cons to both companies over the years. But part of building an on-prem software company is, you know, your, your sales... It, Basically, customer success didn't matter as much, right? I sold you the software. Then there was probably a third-party integrator that actually integrated it. And so the companies that got very large in software you know, 20-plus years ago really had to do a lot of hard work to constantly understand all of the way their products were being used because it was packaged software. I sent it to you. You had it, and that was that. Mm -hmm. One of the benefits, there are costs, by the way, to having a SaaS software company, right? You, you need to focus on customer success. I, these things matter. Right. But one, one of the benefits to building a business in the SaaS world is you're constantly connecting with your customers, right? You're constantly uh -huh. talking to them. Uh, right. You're constantly talking to their IT departments around various cloud issues, right? You're, you're constantly talking to their HR departments. They're turning to you for how do they expand. And so I think... I, uh, granted, I will say I, I haven't I haven't thought about this theory enough to to know that this is a bulletproof theory. But I think just inherent in building a SaaS software business today, 
requires a, a much deeper closeness with the real end users of your product, right? In the old world of packaged software, you'd sell it, you'd sell it to IT, and then they really handled it. Right. And this isn't to say IT departments don't matter anymore. Of course they do. But for us, we spend so much more time on a weekly or monthly or quarterly basis with the actual business users of our software that, you know, over time you're becoming less relevant or more relevant. Fascinating. I think that's uh, that's a fascinating statement, and I'll, I will come right back. I just wanted to, for those of you tuning in, you're listening to Mastering Innovation on Business Radio, powered by the Wharton School. I'm Harbir Singh. I'm speaking with Russ Fraden and Steve Heyman from Dynamic Signal. If you'd like to join the conversation, give us a call. The phone lines are open, 1-844-WHARTON. That's 1-844-942-7866. And just to your point, I think that's really... Uh, a fascinating point because uh, often people talk about the tension between product development and marketing, you know, that there are different worlds and, and often the dialogue is not synchronous, even if it, and sometimes there may even be, be tension uh, in other ways. But I think what you're saying is as long as you are really close to the, the customer's use of your application, that you can actually finesse that. Oh, a hundred percent. Now, by the way, there's a there's a downside to it as well, which is the the upside of being an enterprise software company these days versus 20 years ago is the barriers to entry. Right, getting a large company to try your software is mm -hmm. probably easier now than it has ever been over the last 40 years. Mm -hmm. Right. The downside is getting them to continue with your software and not churn out and become ex customers is hard. And so that has just required, you know, required these muscles and these skills that luckily, you know, versus some of our competitors, right, there was, you know, we had competitors in the employee advocacy category, and frankly, we just probably did a better job understanding all of the ways to grow uh, inside these enterprises. And I suspect it's because of the amount of time we spend focusing on our customers' success and I don't mean that as if it's its own department. Of course, it's its own department. I mean it's something Steve has to think about with his team. And, it, you know, this is not a – it's something sales has to think about. It's something everyone in the organization has to think about. And so that just drives you to understand where your software sits in the solution set at your customers, right? You know, a, a $20 billion public company today is probably buying between 500 and 1,000 pieces of software. Mm -hmm. yes. And so – you know, to, to be successful, it's not enough to sell it, put their logo on your slide deck, and move on. Right. You have to really understand, right, at any given point in time, uh, you know, next year they'll still have 1,000 pieces of software, and 300 of them will be new. So right. 300 people who did a poor job, either, either the product didn't work or just didn't deliver enough value to enough business users across enough of the organization, those will be ex-customers. And I think uh, that's, that's part of why I was, I mean, thank you for the detail, because I was thinking about, you know, these are large corporations. They have a, a lot of applications, right? And to find out where your application is running and who the person is that you should be interacting with on on the next generation or what might be the, you know, the complexities, um, that's difficult, number one. And secondly, um, that requires deploying some resources while still continuing to develop. Yep. So I think that's a fascinating, I think that's one reason why many companies might be unable to sustain um, existing relationships. So what do you think is your biggest uh, challenge, the biggest concern that you have today? 
Oh my gosh! I mean, we we have. I, I don't know how to rank them. I, I Steve and I. One well, how about the top three? <laughs> yeah, I was going to say one of the reasons Steve and I have been business partners for twenty years is uh, is we 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 agree on all of the things we're concerned about. Um, <laughs> but or, or or we agree we should be concerned about a lot of things. I'm not sure we always agree on everything, but we certainly agree we should always be concerned. Uh, so, you know, look, we're selling something brand new into the largest companies in the world, and when they adopt us, it impacts the way they work with every single one of their employees. Mm-hmm. So, you know, the biggest thing we worry about is inertia, relevance, ROI, how we fit in that software stack, right? How we can continue to grow and be useful for all of our customers. And so, I, I don't, I mean, you know, you care, we care about the generic things, of course. We care a ton about the talent on the team. We care, care a ton about the capital markets and financing. But what we really care about at its core is how do you know, every CEO I've ever met at every large company, when I tell them what we do, they love it in the room. Mm-hmm. Turning that from, hey, that is a great idea, to I want to do this. I want to do it with dynamic signal. Right. I really am going to deploy it. I'm going to run the change management or roll this out to 100,000 employees across seven languages and 27 countries, on and on and on, to I'm a happy customer multi years in. Right. Yes, we've done that successfully hundreds of times, but you know there are 50,000 companies worldwide that have the number of employees that would put them in our target market. And you know, yes, we're the biggest today, but we have you know, hundreds and hundreds of them as customers, not 20,000. Right. And so the question of penetration in the marketplace and, and so on, absolutely. And and so uh, tell us a bit, I, it looks like, if, I, if I'm if i not mistaken, you were contemporaries at Penn also, is that right? Yes. So Steve and I have worked, so Steve and I, uh, and, and uh, he can tell you more about it as well, but Steve and I have basically worked together for 22 straight years uh, we were undergraduate roommates at Wharton. Oh, you were room? Oh, how about that? That's very. I was wondering about that because the time frames were coinciding. But oh, yeah. So yeah. a long history. Yeah, I I happened to graduate a year earlier. That is a, a long story, but because I chose to graduate in three years, and but but yeah, Steve Steve and I were were contemporaries and have worked together basically since 1996. I see. So a lot of collaboration. So if you were to give uh, some advice to our current uh, undergrads, for that matter, I know, the, uh, but even the MBAs, I think you may know that Wharton, uh, the big push in Wharton now is on both innovation and entrepreneurship. And uh, we were actually looking at the uh, at some of the uh, top leaders of major tech companies, and Wharton is one of the biggest uh, sources, which is interesting because in your time it was more finance-oriented. But I think if you were to get advise our students today, what would you say are the, are the things they should focus on in school and then early stages in their careers? So my perspective on it, and, and I came out through the engineering side of things as well, not, not just the Wharton side, so mm-hmm. that's how I ended up on, on the tech side, but I think it applies equally for, for both, is you know, really focus on the the practical aspects of running a business and mm-hmm. and, and you know, Wharton provides a great foundation for for both the theoretical but also I think importantly for the practical you know how do those management 101 classes really translate to the day-to-day I think that's what mm-hmm. people need to think about um, how do I how am I gonna how am I gonna run my 11 person startup when I get it going off the ground mm-hmm. uh, 
it, it's very easy to to get caught up in only the kind of the high level or the or the what do I do when I'm at a you know ten thousand person company and and how do I apply my management theory at a really hierarchical place or how do I apply mm-hmm. you know finance when I'm talking about the IPO mm-hmm. but also if you're trying to be entrepreneurial, you're going to have to, in most cases, do it at a much smaller scale first. So right. really think about the practical side of things, the, uh, the smaller scale. Because you know, if you do a good job, you will get to the larger scale, um, right. but you've got you to gotta think small as well. Very interesting. And to some extent, as you're saying, it's uh, an integrative thinking, right? It's the uh, role of technology and the role of business. And then, as you said, I'm sure our management 101 colleagues will be uh, will be thrilled to hear this that it's about you know understanding how to work in teams and how to motivate people and maybe uh, self knowledge right what is it that motivates me is uh, is an important question i don't uh, and i think that's um, of course people think about that but maybe as you said they focus more on the uh, the the career the, the kinds of companies people think they'll be running in the future, you know, major corporations and so on. But in fact, there's so much to be done in in, uh, in the kinds of corporations you have created. Yeah, well, you mentioned motivating people. I think that's a skill that anyone who's trying to start an organization or to run an organization, large or small, uh, it's cliche, but, you know, people really are the most important part of almost every business and nothing gets done without those people. So, so yeah, I think, I think that type of skill set and that type of thinking applies no matter what size company you're at or where you, where your company is in its life cycle. So I think if I'm not, also both of you were involved in Adify, right? Uh, which, uh, yep. Yep. Yes. We had so, a company called Adify together. Yes. Yeah. So tell us about that. Tell us that story. That sounds really interesting. So many, I'm going to give you 30 seconds of background and then jump to Adify. Sure, Many, 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 many years ago when Steve and I were undergrads at Wharton, we, through a very long story that would certainly take more than the time we have left, almost accidentally became the first two employees at a company that effectively invented the idea of the modern ad network back in 1996. Oh, I see. And so we, we weren't the founders of that company. It was founded actually by a, a gentleman getting his MBA at Wharton, and Steve and I wound up the first two people there. I see. And so uh, he, Steve and I have kind of been involved in digital advertising technology for as long as it has existed, actually. Hmm. And so in 2005... Uh, a, cup, a couple of us started a company called Adify, and the idea there was we saw that there was going to be this explosion of advertising networks around verticals. You, ha- you have to think pre-social media, by the way. Mm-hmm. All of the trends at Adify we identified turned out to be exactly correct. Mm. Uh, they just, as, as the web evolved, uh, they've, they've kind of transitioned over to social media and to blogs. But if you think back to 2005, the, the web has, you know, two trillion English language websites, and mm-hmm. some of them were very high quality in very niche vertical areas. And what mm. we realized is those, those websites had fantastic content, but any given one of them did not have enough scale to sell their advertising at much of a premium. So mm. in the way that you know, the, uh, the travel section of Yahoo or the travel section of Forbes could mm-hmm. command great ad rates from advertisers. What we realized is if someone came along who understood that category, it might be Yahoo, 
It might mm-hmm. be Forbes, or it could be an entrepreneur. Right. If someone come along, came along and were to go out and build a relationship with the top 100 mid-tail, long-tail travel sites around you know, cruising in the Caribbean, mm-hmm. uh, they could basically build a vertically specific advertising network. And uh, the idea was to match the fantastic content of the mid- and long-tail publications around uh, you know, influencers in a category uh, with enough audience heft that you could get in front of the large advertisers. And uh, so we were effectively, we were really three things. We were an advertising technology company mm-hmm. combined with a web mapping company. So we had to help you find the top thousand websites that, you, that were small enough that you could recruit, but large enough to matter. Mm-hmm. Combined with a business process outsourcing company. So you're running an ad network is not as simply as you call the top 100 websites. Now I run an ad campaign. It runs across a 1,000 networks. Uh, there are tax filings. They're in different countries. So, you know, I, I bill the advertiser $10,000, but 5000 of it has to get paid out to the various publishing partners of mine. And, you know, that has to get split up many different ways. And so Adify was a unique technology company that was really, like I said, a discovery platform combined with an ad-serving advertising technology platform platform combined with the business process outsourcing company. And it grew very large and we wound up selling it. And if you think about it today, so if I'm, if I'm one of your listeners today who's 18 years old or 20 years old, really what happened is those amazing authors with tons of deep content became the earliest social media influencers, right? So I today, see. all of that great mid and long tail content doesn't really live on blogs as much. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, it does to an extent. It now lives in YouTube or in Instagram or in I guess not Vine anymore, or in Facebook, or in Twitter, or Tumblr, right. or, or things like that. And so uh, you, you've seen you've seen other mo- – so we Adify, like I said, grew large, and we wound up selling it to Cox Enterprises, and it, it still exists today inside of Cox. But those trends probably jumped off of the Internet. I see. In, I'm sorry, it, it, off of kind of destination websites and kind of evolved as social media came along. Hmm. Amazing. Yeah, so it was really, I, I, so I think what you're also saying, which is actually really important, is uh, to have enough of a deep knowledge of, actually not enough, a deep knowledge of the underlying technology, but also at the same time looking at uh, usage and market trends and integrating those, because you said you were able to forecast uh, the shift, right? Which, yeah. is, which, is, which can only be done if you have that integration of those skills. And by the way, you've probably seen this, right? So if you look in the world of technology startups, right. uh, I, I have never seen this data, so I'm, I'm a, I can only do it with anecdotally off the top of my head. But it is relatively rare to see an amazing, new, life-changing, world-changing B2C technology company mm-hmm. started by someone over 40 years old. Right, right. On the other side, it is relatively rare to see a new B2B, very successful B2B company right. started by someone who's under 25 years old. Because if you've never worked inside enterprises and inside an industry, it's unlikely that you would have the insight to start one of these various companies. You won't know how to possible. define the value proposition. Yeah, That's exactly and, that. And, yeah. and there are examples. I'm, I'm not, you know, I'm not, obviously there are outliers in both ways, but, you know, there, there is a reason that people living in the suburbs married with four children don't think to start Foursquare, and there is right. a reason that, you know, people that don't, you know, you, 
it would have been very it would have been basically impossible to have the insight to found Adify if you hadn't spent years working in advertising technology and market research as we had. Wonderful. Well, Russ and Steve, what a great story and thanks so much for sharing your knowledge and experience and your wisdom with us. Uh, where can our listeners go to keep up with you? Uh, DynamicSignal.com, Twitter if you're so engaged with, uh, with, with Twitter, but it's, it's not hard to find myself or to find Steve. Thanks so much. We need to take a short break, and when we come back, I'll be joined by Dennis Carey to talk about his new book, Talent Wins. I'm your host, Harbir Singh. This is Mastering Innovation on Business Radio, powered by the Wharton School on Sirius XM 111. We'll be right back. For more guest interviews, check out our Wharton Business Radio Highlights podcast on iTunes and Google Play. 